мною принято решение о проведении специальной военной операции. We are under attack. It is an attack against Western democracies and on the institutions that bind them. What Russia is much more interested in doing is depicting the West as a failure. Briefly, man, President Yanukovych, they were trying to protect their enormous wealth. This is Kremlin File. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to Kremlin File. And today we're welcoming Evelyn Farkas. Hello, Evelyn. Hello, Monique. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank yeah, you we're so really, much really for coming excited. on. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. We're really, really excited about this you know, conversation we're going to be having. It centers very much around a lot of larger geopolitical okay, considerations that are around the war. All right, that Russia's war of aggression in Ukraine, and you're the perfect person, okay, to talk about this, having this conversation with us. To many people, Evelyn, um, I'm sitting here in Europe, you guys are over there on the other side, but I do get a sensation from a lot of people that they feel that this war is very far away from their own interests, right? This is the kind of, I'm talking about normal normies, okay, people who are not right now jumping in, okay, the way that we do. Um, But I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about the general geopolitical, okay, landscape that we're dealing with, and especially what is Ukraine's strategic strategic significance, okay? Why, for example, should the United States and Europe, all of us, be there to bolster Ukrainian sovereignty? Yeah. So first of all, I think it's really important for people to recognize that we live at a particular time in history. But that means that there was a lot of history that came before us. We fought two world wars. The Second World War was so brutal, we had something that most Americans understand from, their, from what they learned growing up, the Holocaust. We also had Stalin brutally murdering people all over the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. We had a lot of people being killed based on their identity. And we came out of World War II saying, okay, we need a new system because clearly we had World War I, we set up a system, it didn't work because we had World War II again. So no more global war. And that's why we created the United Nations. And the United Nations is not perfect. We know there's still war, right? But has there been a world war since World War II, since we set up the UN? No. And we have had genocide, we have had brutality, we've had human rights violations. But the idea also coming out of World War II was not just to set up a United Nations that would, that would say you cannot invade countries, that you have to respect boundaries, because that was the big issue in both world wars, was fighting over who, who controlled what, what land and what people. The second part of it was the brutality of the wars and the way that people had been murdered, innocent civilians who were not participating in the war. We said, okay, never again. And we set up the Geneva Conventions and a whole set of rules about how wars would be fought and how citizens inside of countries should be treated. If you get to keep your borders, Mr. Non-Democratic Ruler, at least you have to make sure that you respect human rights within your territory. You don't have to be a democracy, but you have to respect human rights. And that's really important for people to understand. There are two separate but related things. 
So I think what happened now is that it, that things changed. Vladimir Putin said, I don't really think this United Nations, this order that we have that's worked since World War II, that the Soviet Union accepted, that China accepted, that the United States accepted, that the China and the United States still accept. Russia said, you know what, it's not working for us anymore. We're going to invade Ukraine. And in 2014, basically, Vladimir Putin said, I want to recreate the former Soviet Union, the Russian Empire, create a Novo Russia, he called it, right? He was an imperialist. And he said, I'm going to use military force to change the boundaries for the first time since World War II, seize Crimea, and then started another war in, in another part of eastern Ukraine in order to destabilize the Ukrainian government, hoping to eventually take over Ukraine. The international community, of course, responded, as you would expect, saying, hey, wait a minute, that's, that's illegal. And there were U.N. resolutions, and we had a majority of states within the United Nations saying, that's illegal, Vladimir Putin, you shouldn't have done that. Of course, it didn't stop him. The United Nations doesn't really have a big enforcement capability outside of what the member states bring, which is where the United States comes in. So we said, okay, well, Ukraine, the Ukrainian people have the right to their boundaries. They have the right to their sovereignty. They have the right to decide whether they want to be part of the EU or NATO. And But first and foremost, they have the right to their boundaries, to their sovereignty. So we provided assistance to Ukraine together with our NATO allies, with our, with our Asian allies even then, um, although some of that was just – and it was actually non-military at the time. And But we said that if we don't defend Ukraine, Russia will get away with essentially challenging, successfully challenging the international order. So that's – the answer to your question is, why does Ukraine matter? Because it's a test case. If we let Vladimir mm -hmm. Putin take over Ukraine by force, other countries, other leaders will try to do the same thing. And the first among them is China in the case of Taiwan, because China mm -hmm. believes that Taiwan belongs to China. Okay, okay. In fact, yeah. I'm, I'm very I, – I agree with everything, okay, that you've said. A lot of times it's difficult to, let's say, get that – um, that message across right to a lot of uh, to a lot of people they cave into all of the populist rhetoric a lot of the russian disinformation that's out there and the kind of narratives that they are you know disseminating across all our social media platforms um this challenge right to the rules-based order that you've just talked about um if let's say some of those countries begin to step away from um, let's say, supporting Ukraine in all, let's say, choosing not to back, okay, Ukraine, even in a neutral stance, for example, how might, what kind of scenario, which to me would be a nightmare, but what kind of scenario are we looking at if Russia manages to take hold of Ukraine, entrench itself there, what does it mean for NATO, for example, right. Right. Or, and for the United States, the United States is, you know, the most important partner in the NATO alliance. Can you right. talk about that a little bit? I mean, it's a nightmare scenario, but can you talk about that? No, I actually, it's the part, because I spoke for so long before, I didn't actually bring it all the way back to the United States and the American people and the, and the everyday American. But why it matters is because if Vladimir Putin can hold on to Ukraine, He's not going to be satisfied just with Ukraine. He's already said he has a neo-imperial vision. He wants to take Republic of Georgia, which is 20% occupied by Russian forces, but he will seize it entirely. He will take Moldova because that also used to independent country, but used to be part of the Soviet Union. 
And he will then turn towards NATO because he knows that the only challenge that he faces militarily and politically, frankly, is coming from NATO. And he wants to break our alliance. And so he will, what will he do? He will probe us. He will see if I, if I attack Poland somehow, either with, you know, irregular forces or a missile goes in or something like that, what will they do? Will NATO rise up and essentially fight Russia or push Russia back or challenge Russia? Or will NATO say, oh boy, we're too worried. We don't want to have a, we don't want to have a conflict with Russia. And So, and if NATO says, well, we don't have a conflict with Russia, then there's nothing stopping Vladimir Putin from trying to essentially attack the Baltic states. You know, it also encourages China and others. And if NATO gets attacked and we do the right thing, which is to say you cannot take over Poland, then the United States will have to send forces to defend our NATO allies, which we should do because if Putin can can cow NATO into submission. If Putin can make NATO say, okay, we surrender, Putin will continue to come after the United States. I think what Americans need to understand is that Vladimir Putin never stopped interfering with our politics. He's all over our social media. All the disinformation that we experienced during COVID, that's still out there being run by the Russians. The Russians are trying to bribe people. They're successfully probably bribing people as we speak in order to achieve their objectives. They're meddling in our elections constantly. Um, we don't even know the, the half of it because a lot of what the Russians did, going back to even 2016, hasn't been fully, I don't think, covered by the media um, hasn't been fully discovered. I think we will only know, frankly, once we see the Kremlin archives, much as we did after the Second World War. So Russia is a very real threat to our democracy and our way of life. And that's another reason why if we can defeat Putin in Ukraine, we will save ourselves a lot of distress and perhaps financial, financial and certainly perhaps human lives. And to add to that, I unfortunately, you know, watch uh, Russian media, however, um, I monitor, you know, their propaganda. And I mean, I don't know, probably over the past decade, they have played out scenarios. I mean, on TV, on a normal night talk show of taking Lithuania, of taking Sawaki yeah. Corridor, of taking Moldova. So, I mean, it's not that they even attempt to hide it. They tell you what they are going to do. And, you know, it's only a matter of time. I mean, Lithuania is already a NATO country, so then NATO will have a choice and Americans will have a choice. Is it boots on the ground in Europe to defend Europe? Are we going to have another European war or do we stop it now? Because, I mean, Russia doesn't hide what they want to do. They have been talking about taking Ukraine for a long time. They have been, you know, discussing that Ukraine is a non-existent country for a long time, way before 2022, and frankly, way before 2014. So, yeah, I absolutely agree with Evelyn on this because we have to. I mean, unless we want to physically go fight a war. And can I just say, as somebody who's worked in the defense establishment, I was advising the Supreme Allied Commander, NATO, you know, the same person, head of the European Command, we looked very closely at potential threats, right, to NATO. The number one potential threat to NATO is Russia. So Ukraine is doing us a favor, military threat. Ukraine is doing us a favor by significantly reducing 
the threat posed by Russia. I mean, don't get me wrong. Certainly on the nuclear front, they're still a threat. And certainly they're still a conventional threat, but they're dramatically weakened. So that is another part of when we think about the Ukraine context and how we deal with Vladimir Putin. I don't think he's he's ready for any kind of challenge, any kind of military confrontation with NATO right now. However, if he succeeded in NATO and he were able to recharge and, and strengthen, re-strengthen his military, then he'd be dangerous. So I think we need to defeat him now while he's relatively weak. 100%. 100%. Um, Evelyn, so um, some foreign policy analysts argue that the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine from the full-scale invasion from last year can be traced back to the international community's, uh, frankly, very weak response to Russia's actions in Georgia in 2008. I would even go further with Chechnya. Um, and uh, also the numerous assassinations they used using chemical weapons on foreign soil. Um, And then we also had Russia's invasion and illegal annexation of Crimea and occupation of Donbass in 2014. We had also Russia assisting the Assad regime and committing a massacre in Syria. I mean, we the U.N. stopped counting with half a million Syrians dead, how many displaced. And then we also, the chemical weapons attacks, which, again, Russia, you know, worked extremely hard to whitewash and to blame on the U.S. and on ISIS and on, frankly, everyone except Assad and themselves as cover. Um, Can you provide the insights into the decision-making processes of that period and why the Obama administration didn't take a tougher stance with Crimea, with uh, Georgia, even though Georgia happened under the Bush administration as he was exiting? Um, You know, Pretty much in those last few months as Obama came in, we still did not have a response for Georgia. Right. So it was August 2008, 15 years ago, when the Russians invaded. It was under the George George W. Bush's administration. He had tried a kind of reset um, with with Russia, which failed. The problem there was uh, that we failed to, we did, we failed to understand the significance of that invasion. We failed to take a strong enough stance. We also uh, fell, I think, somewhat victim to Russian propaganda and the, and the blame the victim um, situation, whereas, which is to say that um, the Russians very effectively convinced, I think, the helped convince the Europeans in the first instance, and then to some extent the Americans as well, that the, that somehow Georgian President Saakashvili and that the Georgians themselves were somehow culpable or partially responsible for the Russians invading Georgia, which is absurd because regardless of whatever the Georgians had done, um, you know, it was against international law for the Russians to do what they did. And so um, th- that was, I think, the first opportunity that we missed to be firm. And, of course, at that point, we, we did not fully comprehend that Vladimir Putin was somebody who we needed to meet with firmness. Also at the time, I would say, in, um, to give some benefit of the doubt to the Europeans and the Americans, Vladimir Putin was a somewhat different person, and he had been much more willing to cooperate, and he had been saying 
um, the right things, I suppose, to, to some, some people in Europe and the United States. So we did not perceive the threat properly. Um, and then, of course, fast forward, um, there's a lot of history that occurred over time where Vladimir Putin became much more um, nationalist, much more, uh, frankly, neo-imperial. The, the, the most neo-imperial phase probably even happened during COVID, but um, he, he became much more convinced that the international, that the international players weren't going to help Russia and weren't going to help him achieve his objectives. And again, that this international order needed to be destroyed. He wasn't going to play by the rules anymore. And when he invaded in 2014, unfortunately, uh, there was a reality there that first and foremost, our European allies did not want to see. Uh, they, in 2008, when they considered whether Georgia and Ukraine should enter NATO, the, the French and the Germans said no, and the American government was actually pushing for membership. It left those two countries in a kind of no man's land, if you will. Uh, you know, we had said you can join NATO, but not now, which, of course, was an opportunity for Vladimir Putin to take some military action to prevent them from joining NATO, which is exactly what he did, again, with the Georgian invasion and then later with the invasion of Ukraine. So the yes, we we did not fully comprehend the threat posed by Vladimir Putin. I think the fact that the Russian uh, economy and that the that was 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 on the decline led some lulled some people into thinking that Russia was not the challenge du jour that we should focus on the rising power which is China and also we were still very much distracted you know very much fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq so. I would say that, um, yes, you're right, but, of course, hindsight is 2020. I was one of the people in the Obama administration that fought for a stronger uh, response to Vladimir Putin and stronger assistance to Ukraine, which eventually came about during the Trump administration, but in and of itself wasn't sufficient to deter Putin. And, of course, as we know, in 2022, he launched another massive but now on a much greater scale human rights busting operation, which, as you said, Olga, mirrored what he had done before in Syria and Chechnya in terms of targeting the civilians. He rightly saw that what he had to defeat was the will of the Ukrainian people and the will of the West to support Ukraine, and the way to do it was to attack innocent civilians, which, of course, is against the law, against international law, mm -hmm. against morality. Yeah. yeah. And to touch on something over the past few years, because so you had these invasions in 2007, you had Russia launch well, probably the first nation state attack on um, Estonia, a cyber attack, and basically, you know, incapacitated their government uh, for a few weeks and caused a mess in their financial systems. And then you had Russia's interference in, uh, you know, pretty much every European election and then interference in the 2016 election. And that is part of their, you know, asymmetric warfare or hybrid warfare or however you want to coin it, because it's not always about a kinetic war. They, they are also yeah. using, you know, various things, disinformation, propaganda, cyber attacks, division operations, as they did, you know, polarizing America polarizing people in Germany, France, and whatnot. Do you think that the West has learned 
Like, do you see a shift? Because a few years ago, like, for instance, Watergate um, in Poland, which mm-hmm. was, you know, uh, the interference of Polish elections, was a test case for the United States in 2016. I think from then we've seen so many of these cases. Do you think now that the Europe and the United States and Canada are more aware that, you know, Russia does pose a threat and do you think they're taking enough um, actions to stop this? I do think, Olga, that there's been a big change in the European perspective on the threat posed by Russia and Vladimir Putin. And where I've seen this most dramatically is in Germany. Uh, None of Mm. us expected, frankly, the German government to respond the way that it has, even despite the fact that, of course, they are in coalition. The Green Party is the minority party in the coalition with the Social Democratic Party. But nobody expected the Social Democratic Party, which had been so co-opted at its highest levels by the Russian government and this desire to get along with Russia and do business with Russia, to actually see the light and do the right thing. And and to the credit of this current government, the German government did exactly that. Um, And so I think they have a great appreciation of how much danger Germany's in, the German people, how much danger Europe is in. And and frankly, if the Europeans had had that understanding in 2008 or in 2014, it would have been a much – it would have put all of us in a better position because I think for the United States, for any president in the United States, it's hard for us to be tougher. We we have been, of course – at different times tougher on Putin than the Europeans or some of the Europeans, because let's face it, the Eastern Europeans and Estonia and others have always been tough and warning us. But, but when, when we looked at the other major European powers, when they were soft, it was harder for us to be firm. If we're on the same page, it's much easier. We have for the United States, for the, for the body politic here in the United States to be firm. And, and I would say, frankly, jumping ahead to today's context and the need to continue funding for Ukraine, I would hope that our European allies would be making loud, uh, arguments, you know, to the American public in favor of doing this. Because I don't think the American public, while they want the European governments and the European people to pull their weight, they don't want to be seen as abandoning them to Vladimir Putin. Yeah, yeah. Actually, looking ahead a little bit and dangers, <laughs> Evelyn, of what you just mentioned, um, because, for example, here the Fed, let's say our government, I, I had not predicted this to tell you the truth. I was actually quite surprised, has pulled through, okay, for Ukraine, and this is something that in our little way. Okay, it's in Italy. We were all yeah. surprised. Yeah. In Italy. Everybody was shocked. I know, I know. I, me, first and foremost. But I'm thinking now of the United States for a moment. I'm jumping ahead to 2024. And let's say there is an administration that gets in um, that, let's say, makes it that's more aligned towards the Trump, okay, uh, Trump faction inside the GOP, like that kind of nightmare scenario where all of a sudden for some sort of objective policy, um, say their their policy is to in some way um, stop any aid to Ukraine, okay? And this is something that a lot of us are thinking and, and trying to hypothesize about. What I wanted to ask is that is there some sort of mechanism um, either 
uh, let's say, a legal okay, mechanism that's in place that could stop that, okay, or some sort of congressional mandates that could put a stop to that? Or is it totally up to the actual uh, presidential office? Well, I think um, we've had a lot of lessons about American democracy um, since Donald Trump entered the, the Oval Office. And what we've learned is that what a lot of people said earlier, all, frankly, who, who paid more closer attention to who was in the White House, is that we have a very strong presidency. Uh, the president in the United States has a lot of power. Yes, Congress has the power of the purse, which means that Congress can stop assistance to Ukraine. Um, it's very hard for the president to circumvent that. Um, and in fact, when presidents have tried, um, there have been legal proceedings, like uh, when when Ronald Reagan uh, tried to, well, apparently he was maybe not aware of it, but when his NSC uh, tried to provide assistance um, to uh, Central American countries against congressional legislation that forbade it, um, there was there was then um, a, a judicial process. So uh, you cannot you cannot even the president can't uh, spend money in any context if it is not specifically authorized and appropriated by Congress. So there is a limit on the president's power, and um, frankly, the president has more ability. Uh, when it when it comes to things that don't cost money, so the president can say we should provide support for Ukraine and continue to use uh, his or her bully pulpit for that purpose. But it is very hard when Congress is opposed. Having said that, you know I think it's important for us not to completely scare the listeners because because in the United States Congress there is still broad bipartisan yeah. numbers are there. The problem is that the way the House of Representatives works and the way that the leadership has ceded so much authority to factions, far right, far right faction in particular, um, in the House of Representatives on the Republican side has meant that there's not as much, it's harder to get something through Congress that even the majority of representatives senators and House members mm. are in favor of, which is to include support for Ukraine. Okay. Yeah. That are opportunities because the support is still there to, there are ways that probably Congress could also, you know, fight back against the factions among them. Okay. I hope it doesn't get to that. <laughs> and it's and it's um honestly it's it's uh surreal because when you actually speak with you know some Republican members in Congress privately and work with them, I mean they are very for uh Ukraine's victory. But then uh unfortunately when it comes to, you know, what is portrayed in the media, even with some of them in their own words appeal to their bases, you see a different story. But privately, there's a very big bipartisan support for Ukraine, for sanctions on Russia. I mean, we rarely see any kind of roadblocks, even when, you know, enacting sanctions just publicly. And publicly, it matters because you see the support falling for Ukraine. Have you ever experienced turbulence on a flight and wondered why? And you can see all the terrain around you. Uh, you've got no issue with visibility or anything? No, everything's PG. 
Maybe you've sat on the tarmac for hours wondering why your plane isn't moving. Well, we're outside here. They're saying the ramp is closed. They won't let us park because of the uh, Air Force One. Listen in on the conversations between pilots and air traffic controllers on the Air Traffic Out of Control podcast. Cybersecurity declaring an emergency. There's smoke in the cabin. I need to make a landing right now on 31 left. We have the most interesting, wild, and funny ATC recordings you will ever hear. Check out Air Traffic Out of Control wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. They're listening, you know, Americans are listening to their politicians that they support. And I also want to say that one thing that um, has been really remarkable has been the business community, the private sector, private commercial sector. They have really, um, ro- they rose to the occasion and they have provided significant assistance to Ukraine. We at the McCain Institute decided we wanted to bring them together, these defense tech and tech companies in particular, who are helping Ukraine in order to, frankly, you know, bolster them, give them encouragement, um, and then help them be more effective. And but and and then the last part of it was to signal to Congress, to all of our supporters and friends of the McCain Institute, that look what these companies are doing. Uh, there is a lot of support for helping Ukraine. You should continue your support as well. Excellent, and thank you for that. <laughs> no, it is. The one heartwarming thing I have to say, you know, from this nightmare uh, since the full-scale invasion is how many people are really using whatever they have, whatever capabilities, uh, skills to try to help Ukraine. And it's it's really, it's something, seeing everyone pull together. Um, now turning to the counteroffensive, which frankly has been really driving me crazy. We saw um, Europe and the United States, you know, for some reason, Russia is sits in the center of the universe, and every single decision is made made based on what will Putin think, how will he feel, and whatnot, which results in a delay of weapons. I mean, if only it was in words, that's fine, but I mean, it's a delay in weapons, and weapons that eventually make it to Ukraine six, eight months later, when they could have been sent immediately, has resulted in Russia mining the front lines to the point of, I mean, uh, every single satellite should have seen what was happening as they were negotiating, whether it's tanks should go, not go, whether long-range, mid-range missiles should go and whatnot. So they should have known what was happening, that Russia is mining the front lines, and that once Ukraine does get these weapons in the, you know, very delayed time frame, then, you know, there will be more difficulty in conducting a successful counteroffensive. Offensive. Now you have people sitting, and, I mean, uh, Ukraine began their counteroffensive in June. It is extremely dangerous. I mean, on the front lines, it is a nightmare. People are losing their limbs there. I mean, it, it, it's just an absolute nightmare. And now, not even two months later, people are now, why is this counteroffensive going so slow? What is happening with our weapons? You know, Ukraine should have already seized back more territory, and basically everyone, you know, has comments on it. So a twofold question. One, if due to some of our actions, the uh, Putin uh, manages to continue the war long term. Will the support remain? 
And two, is there any way that we can speed up these weapons deliveries, which are crucial? Because every single day there's a delay. That's another apartment building that undergoes a terrorist attack by Russia. That's more Ukrainians dying. And, you know, like, what can be done about this? I mean, I think so. One of the issues has been, yes, this. Um, fear of Putin overreacting and somehow escalating the situation if we provide, I mean, you know, tanks, if we provide um, uh, high Mars, you know, there there are so many systems that um, people like me advocated for. And then eventually when we provided them, there was no overreaction. And so I think we need to be willing to accept more risk and understand that most of the time Putin backs down. And if he does escalate, we we have means to prevent escalation from going all the way up to, you know, nuclear or something like that. And frankly, on the nuclear, the Chinese are helping because they've been very clear that they don't appreciate the nuclear saber rattling. So even the verbal mention of nuclear use, use not to mention actual nuclear you mean, use. You mean Medvedev waking from his uh, drunk stupor? From his drunken stupor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then threatening a nuclear war every other day. Yeah. No so, so I think that um, we we need to stop. We need to be be less risk averse when it comes to what we provide to Ukraine. In addition to that, I think, frankly, the rules that we've um, set set for Ukraine on that assistance. I don't understand why we tell the Ukrainians that they can't use U.S. or Western weapon systems to target valid military targets in Russia or in occupied Ukraine. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, that just makes me think of, you know, the Vietnam War and sanctuaries that we provided to the enemy during that war. So uh, I don't believe in providing any kind of sanctuary. I understand that there's a risk, again, that Putin might decide that we somehow are culpable, but it, it's a ridiculous distinction. We are already providing weapons to the Ukrainians. So yeah. if those weapons are used somewhere where there are more Russians, it, I don't think it makes a difference. And also, let's not forget the fact that Putin is not now. While I talked about the danger of Putin challenging NATO if he wins in Ukraine, that's if he wins in Ukraine. He's not now interested in having another, you know, war with another country, much less NATO country and the whole NATO alliance. So yeah. I think we need to be less risk averse. And then and then as far as speeding up the weaponry. So there's a decision of what to send. And that that I think can absolutely be re rejiggered. Right. We can take on a little bit more risk. Uh, or or we can understand that it's not that risky. <laughs> Frankly, it's closer to that. The second component is how fast can we get things to the battlefield? Look, there is training that needs to happen. We are always mindful of our inventory. Yes, the greatest threat to Europe is a European threat. Um, so we so is a threat from Russia. So there also I think we can accept a little more risk and provide a little more of our defensive weaponry, NATO defensive weaponry to Ukraine, because after all, they are protecting us from Russia. But we do have other enemies. And we so if we're mindful or adversaries, if we're mindful of the need to continue to deter China and others in other contexts, North Korea, Iran, sure, you know, we don't want to completely deplete our stocks. But I don't think we're at that point. And so I think – and also, we're not on a war footing right now in terms of our defense production. You know, we could think about mm. doing more. 
And then finally, I think doing more creative things faster. We have turned to the South Koreans and said, hey, Poland in particular said, we want to buy some weaponry from you. We need to involve more of our allies, the non-European allies, quicker. We have, again, been doing a better job of doing that than we did even in the first phase of the of Russia's war against Ukraine, where we tried, but we really weren't able to get as much coordination. This is much better because, again, there's much more understanding of the threat posed by Russia. Okay, okay. Actually, speaking of China, because you mentioned uh, mentioned China, um, and it's it's sort of like that silent partner, you know, that's out there. Um, Olga and I spoke uh, with Dennis uh, Hutik all about the um, let's say the the influx of tech, right, that moves through China, Chinese companies that are sort of the front companies going in way up to Russia. My question is a little different. Mm-hmm. And then maybe Olga would like to follow up, okay, with another question on that vein. Um, we're also seeing a China, there's a, things coming out in the press now of a China who is, that is going through some economic issues. Uh, unemployment numbers, for example, are skyrocketing, especially with younger Chinese people. We know that Evergreen, for example, I think today or um, has filed for bankruptcy protection in the United States for its holdings. Um, there, there is a lot of you know, talk of this kind of thing. To what extent then would China continue to support Russia? And do you see actually that China is supporting Russia? Or are you part of the group saying, no, it's not? Okay, so first of all, I don't think that what China experiences economically uh, determines their stance vis-a-vis Russia. However, I will say that China experiencing economic difficulty could make it harder to deal with China because if she starts to think, just as Vladimir Putin did around 2010, 2011, mm-hmm. that economically things are on the downturn, he is likely to be tempted to become even more nationalist and to distract his people with foreign adventures. So I don't think it's necessarily, you know, um, China's on the downturn, and so now we don't have to Mm. worry about China, because I heard that before when we were dealing with it. So I'll just say that. Um, The second component, though, is, as I said, the fundamental reason why China wants a good relationship with Russia is their long border, the fact that Russia has a nuclear capability, the fact that Russia still has a large military capability, that it can always at some point re recapitalize, uh, not now, right now it's not a, a challenge to China, uh, at least the conventional forces aren't, but in the future, Russia could be a potential problem for China militarily uh, and, and politically. If, if there's not a government in the Kremlin that is friendly towards China. So China actually doesn't really care about the outcome of this war as long as whoever's in the Kremlin at the end of this war is friendly towards China, which is why China doesn't really want Putin or Russia to be defeated in this conflict. China doesn't like the fact that it's dragged on so long and that it's a challenge to the economic order and the economic well-being of the Chinese people at this point. Um, It's caused a lot more tension between China and the United States. These things are linked in that respect. Um, And 
And so I think China would like this war to end, but it's mindful of the fact that it wants the war to end in a way that doesn't result in some kind of Western-friendly government sitting in the Kremlin. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, and I'm also, I mean, I'm in the camp that, you know, China and Russia will partner together when they need to, when it's, you know, to, to, to push back against the West. But at the same time, I mean, historically, like each one is always looking over each other's border to make sure there's no invasion. And even, interestingly enough, um, what was it last summer, you know, Russia arrested several very, like, senior-level um, scientists. And it was actually for leaking um, uh, classified information, I believe, on the hypersonic missile program yeah. to China. And uh, so, I mean, the trust yeah. is not there, even though publicly they'll unite, you know, to kind of show that united front. But we always have to monitor. Yeah. Now, Monique mentioned um, Dennis Hutik. So he... Um, works for the Economic Security Council of Ukraine, and we spoke with him last week. And basically, he has been working on uh, monitoring military components that are making its way from the West um, to Russia. My uh, own source in Ukraine has told me that Russia has increased their military uh, production by five times. And with Dennis, he said that U.S. right now is pretty much 70 to 80 percent of microchips and, you know, other military components and tech is coming uh, from America via third-party countries into Russia. How do we stop this? And why are there so many loopholes? And in another scenario, which I've personally been working on, um, we have uh, the U.S. sanctioned several uh, Russian military ships, uh, particularly the Spartas. And, I mean, literally, we are monitoring how it's leaving, um, you know, transporting weapons from Iran to Russia, stops at the Syria mm-hmm. port, unloads, I mean, and makes its way through the Bosphorus, through Greek waters. No one stops this ship. Meanwhile, it's carrying weapons. What is happening between the military components and, you know, the the shipments that continue going and no one's really um, enforcing it? Yeah, I I saw also it was either CNN or BBC did a story as well about the Black Sea and how all these weapons are coming from Iran to Russia. Uh, Look, I mean, I think that there's more to be done, certainly – using the stick of sanctions to get the fence-sitter countries, uh, countries in Central Asia, um, the Caucasus, to to work more closely with us. But there's also probably carrots we can use, especially when I think of Central Asia. Um, carrots we can use to persuade countries to work more closely with us to stop the Russian shipments and to crack down. We also need to continue all the time, even though – You know, we bemoan the fact that there's no real enforcement for U.N. sanctions and U.N. resolutions. Mm -hmm. We still need to. It's very important in terms of messaging um, to the bad guys and, frankly, to the good Mm -hmm. guys who are fighting every day to uphold the international order. We need to use the United Nations and the bully pulpit there to shame and name. Okay. Yeah, I I mean, even PBS recently just came out with a story – Fast automation, incredible. I mean, they were shipping directly up to um, last summer 
to Russia when PBS actually exposed it. Um, then they shifted over and now, you know, are shipping to a French company in China. And then from there, it is going to Russia. And I mean, yeah. again, all these parts are getting into, um, you know, uh, Russian weapons that are being used in Ukraine. Yeah. Go ahead, Mo. Yeah. No, I often get the, 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 the question, you know, why is it that they're still able, right, to produce and still fight on, okay, with all of the sanctions and all of that kind of thing. Part of it is our fault because of what, you know, we're not doing on our behalf to be able to limit these. I mean, you're not going to stop at 100%, but at least, okay, get those numbers down. I mean, Olga, when Dennis told us 80, 70, 80% of, uh, of this kind of tech, um, is there any hope, Evelyn, at all, of anything from inside the regime? Do you feel that there are any challenges to Putin inside or not? I know I'm um, all just way, laughing at this one. It's, yeah, it's I, just, I, I, yeah. I just want to say one other thing, though, um, because when I talked about international efforts and naming and shaming and carrots and sticks, I also need to put in a plug to or a round of applause to President Zelensky for going to Jeddah and, tr- and making the case, frankly, to those fences yeah. countries. Um, that's also really important. It doesn't change things overnight. But again, creating a set of norms and understanding of what is maybe going too far and too shameful, I think it, it's helpful also in the sanctions context. Um, with regard to what is happening inside of Russia, uh, look, I think um, none of us really know. Um, there must be a lot of in, elite infighting because people are showing up dead, you know, every day, <laughs> generals and <Not> others, <laughs> um, right? Um, you can name them all. Uh, just Google it. Um, and, you know, a lot of lot of the dying while smoking a cigarette on a balcony um, continues in Russia among the elites and among people who were formerly uh, supportive of Vladimir Putin, not just in Russia, but around the world. Um, so, and we know, of course, the Prigozhin challenge was the biggest one, and that has yet to play out fully. Putin is weakened, so there, I'm sure there are elites, you know, vying for uh, power, and that is again largely behind the scenes for us outside of Russia or outside of the Kremlin. Um, as far as someone else taking over, I, I could very well imagine another member of the elite, uh, you know taking over. But as we learned from the Prigozhin uh, episode, you need to make sure that you have the military behind you because that's where the force is, if you will. You know, you need to, if you're going to challenge Vladimir Putin, then you need to have sufficient force to do that. Um, As far as the, you know, democratic opposition, I think that they're doing the right thing. They're providing for the Russian people an example of an alternative and keeping hope alive and uh, we need to mention their names all this time. Vladimir Karamurza, who was a pallbearer at Senator McCain's funeral, a close friend of Senator McCain, has been now sentenced to a ridiculous amount of time for calling the war a war. Essentially, they're trying to sap the will of the opposition in Russia. But I think that that will is is still strong because we see, of course, some of the sabotage operations and the things that Russians are saying. Uh, either on Telegram or elsewhere. So I don't see a big change. Um, you know, I don't. I I don't know when the change will come. I think Vladimir Putin could very well get pushed out of power, sent off to a dacha. You know, the way Yeltsin and Gorbachev were before him. Um, 
or it could come to something more bloody. And that's just something that we never can predict from the outside, no. nor can people predict it inside of Russia. No. no, no. And it happens so quick. No, but I do laugh because, I mean, since last year you see all this infighting and, you know, I mean, Russia has weaponized social media to attack the West and the international community and spread their propaganda for so long. And now it's actually very fascinating and funny that everything is playing out on social media by, you know, their own factions. And, I mean, in the Cold War, I, I think CIA would like pay an arm and a leg to find out what is happening and everyone yeah. would focus on, you know, the expressions, the body language, and then now all you have to do is frankly just sit on uh, Telegram all day and you would see what is happening. And everything comes and I've out. Never, yeah, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, even with Progoshin, the things he said, I mean, I was like sitting there, I'm like, my God, if my parents even uttered like the first three words of that, they would have been executed. And, it would have been done. And here I'm like, okay, so, but it's definitely it's gonna. The more turbulence there is inside of Russia, the better. The better them, it is. You know. Now this is one of my nightmare scenarios, <laughs> and something I've already been monitoring for um, uh, quite a like since this year. It's already started early. Putin is not going to win militarily. That we know. The security services in Russia know, you know, the elite know. I mean, the only thing that is happening as slow as it feels and is that Ukraine is getting stronger by the day with weapons coming and with more support and whatnot. So Putin knows, you know, Ukraine is, the, I mean, that that that's a done deal for him. I mean, obviously, publicly, he'll never admit to it. But I think him and everyone in Russia has had the rude awakening that Ukraine is a sovereign country staying that way, and they're not going to be dividing it up like they did with Crimea. Um, but his only hope, and for his own survival, frankly, and for Russia's, you know, you know, not falling into uh, like uh, a collapse, is to disrupt the elections. And we have very, very key elections coming across Europe. We have key elections, um, you know, a key election in U.S. Uh, mm -hmm. coming up next year. And my biggest worry is that Putin's only hope is to cause the biggest chaos, to unseat the Biden administration, to unseat, you know, pro-Ukraine politicians across Europe in order to break the alliance, break the support for Ukraine, you know, break the military shipments going to Ukraine. Do you think, am I overreacting, one, and two, do you think we are prepared if this happens? Is Europe and the United States, our agencies, prepared to deal with another uh, interference in elections? Um, so you are absolutely not being alarmist. You are correct to be concerned. You know, as I said before, the Russian government, Putin, the Kremlin, they didn't stop attacking our political system uh, after, you know, Trump became president. Um, and certainly once Biden became president, they didn't stop. Um, there's a lot of Russian disinformation on our social media. There's a lot of Russian influence. Um, you know, people like Tucker Carlson clearly have some um, – connection, interest, certainly bias towards Putin, 
himself. <laughs> and, um, and we know that the conservative movement inside America invited Viktor Orban here for him to literally share what he calls his recipe um, for taking over democracy. And, and, Vlad- and uh, Viktor Orban is also a close ally, despite the fact that he's a NATO member, that Hungary is a NATO member, and the EU is a, is a, is a sorry, that Hungary is an EU member as well. Viktor Orban himself is, is a friend of Vladimir Putin's. So there are actors who are influenced by Russia, whether it's money or something else. Um, they, they are in the United States saying things, doing things, that benefit not the United States, not the American people, but Vladimir Putin and autocrats. So um, that is something that the Russians have exploited. You know, whether they created it, I don't know, but they are always looking to create more allies. Uh, You know, just recently we had another one of the Republican candidates um, who's rising in the polls. I'm not going to name Yeah, Um, 11%. Really Mm. irresponsible things about about Ukraine and and meeting with Putin. And um, so I think we need to make sure that um, the American people understand what's at stake, that these are immoral ideas, even frankly, um, in the current context, the idea of just, you know, acting as if nothing happened and meeting with Vladimir Putin and doing business with him as usual. Yes, of course, we need to do business with Russia. But let's be clear, you, you cannot excuse what Vladimir Putin's done. And by the way, he's wanted by the International Criminal Court. So um, you know, again, that's something that it, that cannot be overlooked and should not be overlooked. So I guess that's a long answer to your question, Olga. We should be really concerned. We should be vigilant as to whether the government's ready. I mean, we're never fully prepared. It's very hard when the Russians are using money, when they're using social media to completely eliminate their influence. But the more we speak about it, the more we have people, people like you guys doing podcasts like this, the more we have leaders, American leaders, that people respect understanding and speaking of the danger, the better off we are. And we do have, you know, we have a very strong people in the United States who are uh, understand what's at stake that we could call upon, who are um, cultural leaders, who are um, Ukrainian-American, you know, actors, actresses. So, yeah, that. I mean, I, I am extremely worried about that. I mean, even to the point that I never in my life, um, you know, until the past several years, envisioned in Congress that they would literally be running a Russian operation with, uh, you know, fake investigations based off of Kremlin's, you know, intelligence operations. And same thing happened even uh, during the 2020 election. Um, and and, 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 and we, there are cases already of people who are being prosecuted or who have gone to jail or who have paid fines for providing election, for providing money, Russian money, to American candidates. So that is a, a fact. Yeah. And the fact that that's happened already means that it's likely happening right now. So that's something that our, our government needs to be more vigilant about. Hopefully they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope it happens so. here all the time, and coordinated efforts because it's yeah. not just the same kind of um, ideas that are you no know, brought that are uh, or operations that are cooked up. Mm-hmm. Uh, they happen in Italy, like they happen in the United States, you know, uh, that kind of thing. So yeah, definitely. Here, actually, I have to say, I was in Denmark a few months ago, and I had extremely bad internet. 
But in the process, I saw the disinformation running um, that Giuliani, like, buttered some nonsense that, like, uh, an accountant in Burisma who was on her way to testify in Congress was killed. So here I am with the worst internet trying to figure out, I'm looking through Ukrainian news, Russian news, absolutely <laughs> nothing, nothing. I mean, uh, someone would have written about it besides Giuliani, you know, uh, saying it. And I even text my contacts in Ukraine, and I'm like, listen, this is extremely important. Did anyone die? This woman, and as a matter of fact, her husband, you know, had died. Um, they even spread about her husband's mysterious uh, death. He died in 2011, I believe, or 12, driving 150 miles an hour drunk. So I don't know how mysterious that is. But anyway, so apparently no woman died. Nothing happened. This, this whole thing was made up. But then finally, when I got back to the United States and had internet, when I reverse engineered the disinformation that Giuliani had spouted, it went back to a former SBR general's son-in-law who was the propagandist. That's where it went back to. And this former SBR um, general, Resetnikov, was the one who was a key player in attacking U.S. 2016 elections. Oh, Evelyn, thank you so much for being here, putting all of these issues you know, into perspective uh, and giving us your insights, because we know, right? Um, thank you so thank much. You. Thank, thank you, you for coming much. on, and thank you for thank making us feel better. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Good. Take care. Keep doing what Bye. you're doing. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Hi, everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to help us out with our independent work, please subscribe to Kremlin File on Substack and on our YouTube channel. Kremlin File is hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monique Kamara. Our production team is headed by Maddie Kaparov and the theme music by Oreste Kamara. So please don't forget to visit our Kremlin File Substack for links to our socials and to wherever you'd like to listen to podcasts.